Welcome to this Forthright Radio for August 18th, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today on Forthright Radio is Tom Hartman, returning with a new addition to his Hidden History series, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. It will be coming out in early September 2021, published by B.K., Barrett Kohler Publishers. Tom Hartman has had a very interesting life, campaigning for Barry Goldwater at the age of 13 with his father in Michigan, and then a few years later protesting the war in Vietnam with Students for a Democratic Society, SDS. He's an ordained minister with Coptic Fellowship International. In the 1970s, he founded numerous businesses, from an herbal products company to the New England Salem Children's Village. He founded International Wholesale Travel and Subsidiaries in 1983. He moved to Germany with his family to work with Salem International, a relief agency. He founded the advertising agency, the Newsletter Factory. In 1996, he sold that company and retired to Vermont. And from 1968 to 1978, he worked as a DJ and news director at Lansing, Michigan radio stations. In 2003, he started a radio show on a local station in Vermont, which was quickly picked up by IE America Radio Network and Sirius Satellite Radio. Then he moved to Oregon in 2005, and in addition to continuing his national show, he co-hosted a local show in Portland, and he's done a TV program. I haven't nearly exhausted his exhausting curriculum vitae, and I haven't even mentioned all the books he's written. By my count, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich, is number 31. We recorded this interview on August 16th, 2021. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Tom Hartman. Thank you, Joy. Great being here. Tom, the latest book in your Hidden History series, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich will be coming out in early September 2021. It's published by BK Barrett Kohler Publishers. Now, you introduce this book by comparing the SARS-CoV-2 experiences of two nations, Taiwan and the United States. Please share with our listeners how they do compare. Because Taiwan has what is arguably the best, most efficient and cleanest single-payer healthcare system in the world, everybody in Taiwan is in this national medical database. And what that allowed them to do as soon as COVID happened, started happening a year and a half ago, was to almost instantly build a very robust testing and contact tracing system so that they were able to keep, I don't know what the numbers are over the last few months. I haven't, I haven't looked back at Taiwan, but by the end of the year, they had only had a few dozen, as I recall, deaths in Taiwan. They very effectively got this pandemic under control, or at least before the Delta variant came along. I'm guessing that they're having a problem now, but. We could talk about the differences between Taiwan and the United States, and there are many. But the thing that is pertinent here is that the first case of COVID in the United States reported was January 20th, 2020. The very next day was the first case in Taiwan. That's right. Well, let's talk about some of the differences. First of all, it's a smaller country. It's an island nation. It's pretty homogeneous. 
and they do not have the history that we do of what we euphemistically call rugged individualism. In this country, as, boy, as COVID has really brought to the foreground, we are not homogeneous, not even close anymore. And there seems to be a real mistrust of governments in general and our government in particular. I wish you would explore that aspect of it because you do go into it in your, not just this book, but other books in the Hidden History series of how the distrust in our government came about. Would you go into that, please? In the 1960s, after World War II, Two decades after World War II, the Pew organization was doing polling and have continuously. They've been doing polling on do you trust your government, basically. And what they found was the trust in government back then was very, very high. It was like in the 70, high 70 percent range, as I recall. I'm doing this from memory. I don't have, I'm not sure if it's in the book or, and I don't have it in front of me if I, if it is. More recently, I know just, uh, just a few months ago, they published the latest report and it showed that uh, trust in government was something like 17% or, or maybe in the low 20s. It was very, very low. And there's a very specific reason for this. In the 60s, you had two books that were published. In 1961, it was Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. And in 1965, Unsafe at Any Speed by Ralph Nader. And these two books kicked off two movements, the environmental movement and the consumer movement or the consumer safety movement. And by 1971, people like Lewis Powell, who was a tobacco lawyer in Virginia, worked for the big tobacco companies, were very much feeling under siege because the regulatory state was growing. We were starting to make cars safer. We were starting to regulate DDT and other pesticides. And they didn't like that. That hurt profits. Also at that time, the top tax rate was 91%, the top income tax bracket. If you were making more than about $3 million a year, it started hitting you at 91%. And the top corporate tax rate was almost 50% for very, very, very kind of money printing profitable corporations. And so what Powell and his right-wing buddies suggested was that we needed to turn Americans, average Americans' worldview from hey, everything's good and we can trust each other and we're all in this together, away from that and toward this idea that government is an evil entity, which is how rich people and and big corporations viewed it anyway because they didn't like being regulated and taxed. So they started this campaign to convince Americans that you can't trust government, that government is evil, that bureaucrats are bad people. Reagan used to make jokes about how there's no good people in government. If they were good, they'd be working for a corporation and making more money, which is just such an insult to really great people in government. And it really hit its peak in terms of getting on the bandwagon in 1981 when on January 20th, when Reagan was sworn into office and he said, government is not the solution to your problems. Government is the problem. And that message then in 86, you had Rush Limbaugh go on the air. And by the early 90s, there was a whole industry of right wing talk radio. And I think it was in 89 or maybe early 90s that Fox News came along. Rupert Murdoch moved his rather sordid operation from Australia to the UK to the US. And we've just been pounded with this idea that you can't trust government. And it has taken a real toll. It's, it's pitted Americans against each other. It has ripped apart our social fabric, 
but it has succeeded in in many of the goals that uh, Lewis Powell laid out in his 1971 memo. They have stacked the courts with the right-wing ideologues. They've gotten their taxes radically reduced from 91% down to 25%. During Reagan's time, it's up around 34% now, top tax bracket. Corporate taxes are very low. And in fact, for the the top 1%, most pay taxes between 1% and 3%, whereas average working people pay, you know, 10, 15, 20%. So it's worked for them, and they're going to continue doing it. And then on top of that, now what we're finding, and we've seen this since the 2015 Republican primary and in a big way since the 2016 election, is there's a couple of other countries that do not like the idea of democracy, that want American people to hate their democracy, and they want to tear apart the fabric of our society specifically Russia and Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And they poured a lot of money, those countries, and some billionaires in Israel as well did this, poured a lot of money in, into trolls and whatnot on social media to pit Americans against each other on behalf of Donald Trump by and large. But that crusade, that campaign continues to this day. And now they're feeding the whole anti-mask, anti-vax thing. Again, anything that any wedge that they can use to tear Americans apart and make us hate each other, they're going to do and they're going to double down on to the point where we saw in Tennessee uh, last week a school board meeting where all these people showed up and started yelling, we know where you live and we're going to come and get you. And then as they started identifying the pictures, they discovered none of them were parents. They were basically your your local right wing Nazi group, a group that has been just totally empowered by all these efforts. I was aware of that video. I saw it, but I had not heard that they weren't parents at that meeting. Wow. And more and more, I I saw two videos today on Twitter where they, again, school board meetings where people came and they were shouting and screaming and carrying on and where they've discovered that, you know, these people, they, they don't have children in the district. They don't even have children in case of one of them. Another one was affiliated with a right wing Nazi group or a prod boy group or whatever. Yeah, it's it's a thing now. And they're cranking them up in, in Facebook mostly. Well, this is kind of a sideline, but you've you've piqued my curiosity. Do you have any sense of what the motivation for that is? I mean, it's it takes energy to get up and go to a meeting and so what are they thinking? Do you know? They have been convinced by these largely foreign trolls, although there are disinformation campaigners here in the United States who are making a lot of money on this. They have become convinced that anything that the federal government does, the U.S. government does, is part of an international conspiracy to deny white people their rights and to promote the interests of black people and gay people and women over men. And I mean, pick your horrible trope. And These are the messages that are being conveyed. Masking is part of, and that vaccines are part of this giant conspiracy to turn us into sheep and get us to do what the government tells us to do so that the next step is going to be the government telling us to commit mass suicide by drinking Kool-Aid or something, or to get a shot that's going to give you a, a microchip or some other crazy idea. It's all about tearing apart America. America has, uh, prior to the, to the Trump administration, was always viewed as kind of the shining light, the example of democracy that the world wanted to follow. They're trying to, people who are pressured by that, who feel the pressure of that, the oligarchs in Russia, the royal families of the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and other countries like this, they view democracy as a threat. And if they can take this country down, if they can damage or destroy our democracy and make us hate each other, they benefit directly from that. Well, as you documented very well in one of your earlier hidden history books on oligarchy, 
there are Americans who are vehemently opposed to democracy as well. But let's not get sidetracked. Listeners can listen to the archived edition of that interview. But let's get into the history of universal health care, single-payer health care. I was very surprised that the history of single-payer government-run health care goes back to Bismarck's Germany. Yeah, 1884. Tell us about that. Bismarck was no liberal, but he got it. The best and most efficient way to have a healthy nation was to have a single-payer health care system. And he put it into place. It would make his country more competitive in the world, which was you know, one of his main goals. And it's very straightforward. And it's been there ever since. I mean, they've, there's been a lot of modifications to it over the years. So I lived in Germany in 80, 86, 87, and their healthcare system has changed quite a bit even since then. But by and large, it's still there and still works, and, and the Germans love it. Now, it wasn't just Bismarck thinking this is a good idea. There was a lot of grassroots pressure. Let's remember Karl Marx was there 20, 30 years ahead of this 1884, right. and he did the analysis. The Industrial Revolution was happening. It was really coming on strong in Germany, and the workers were demanding it. So Yes, the workers were demanding it, and so it was like, okay, let's make these part of our labor contracts. There it was, let's, let's have the government do it. So you did bring up the white nationalism issue that we're currently dealing with today. And this is not the first time. And you talk about how that actually impeded any efforts in this country to get health care for the masses. So tell us about Frederick Ludwig Hoffman and scientific racism. And how does that figure into this history? Well, this is one of the most amazing and disheartening things that I learned when I was doing the deep dive research for writing this book. In the late 1800s, the late 19th century, medicine was becoming a thing, you know, a real profession and lister and surgeons wearing masks and huge advances in surgery and and medication. And by the early 1900s, even the standardization of pharmaceuticals. And as it was becoming a thing, there was uh, this kind of parallel movement to give rights to African-Americans who had been denied them as a consequence of the 1876 election, you know, when they ended Reconstruction, the, the Tilden Hayes election. And this guy, this German immigrant, Frederick Hoffman, came over to the United States, ended up marrying a girl from Georgia, which was kind of, I lived in Georgia for 13 years. It's a very racist state, I can tell you. And he picked up these ideas that, although he certainly was inclined to believe them anyway, but that African-Americans were genetically inferior to white people. And that if we simply denied African-Americans health care, that the entire race would eventually just die out and it would solve the race problem in America. And he wrote a book about this called Race Tendencies of the American Negro. And he went around the country pitching this idea to large groups, large crowds to, you know, like the Grange and the Lions Club and the city councils. He testified before Congress. He met with the president. It became a crusade for him. 
He had a very good reputation. He was a statistician. He was the guy who discovered that there was a correlation between asbestos exposure and lung cancer and cigarette smoking and lung cancer. And eating diets high in fresh fruits and vegetables produced low levels of cancer. In fact, his book on diet and cancer is still in print. And he used that credibility to promote this idea that we needed to deny health care to black people in order to solve the race problem in America. And he ended up being in the early 1900s a vice president with the Prudential, which was the largest insurance company in the United States at the time. And they had started out in the fire insurance business and then they went into the life insurance business. And, and by the 1920s, there was this beginning, this very early beginning of the health insurance in this business. So they were absolutely committed to the idea that the government should never get in the insurance business, should never compete with them. So Hoffman became their spokesman and insinuated himself, kind of infiltrated all of these different insurance groups and health groups and health advocacy groups and became the main guy for why we didn't have any kind of national health insurance program. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt had talked about a national health insurance program in 1912. It's part of his square deal. But it wasn't going to happen as long as Frederick Hoffman was alive. He died in 1946. But he was still being quoted in Congress in the 50s and 60s, the 1950s and 60s. <laughs> and all of this, all of this resistance or much of this resistance in the United States to any kind of a national health care program that would serve everybody goes back to Hoffman's theory that denying health insurance to black people is, is a great way to solve the race problem. It's also why there's a 20% hole in Medicare. The Southern Democrats didn't want poor blacks to be able to access Medicare. And so they figured if you had to pay a 20% deductible, that would cause most black people not to use health services. That was the price that Lyndon Johnson had to pay when he passed Medicare, which is why we have Medigap insurance policies. It has permeated every aspect of American life. It's just absolutely extraordinary. We're speaking with Tom Hartman. His latest book in the Hidden History series is The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. It turns out that there is a history that goes all the way back to just soon after the American Revolution of mutual insurance health care. George Washington is responsible for that. Tell our listeners about that, please. Sure. Well, Ben Franklin actually was the inventor of the mutual insurance idea. And in fact, the mutual insurance company he founded in Philadelphia still exists. And uh, explain what mutual insurance is. It's sort of like a co-op. If you buy a policy from a company that has the word mutual in their name, they instead of being like a for-profit corporation where when there's profits, they distribute the profits to the shareholders. The shareholders of the mutual insurance company are the policy owners. So it's sort of like a, a community credit union. If, if you're a member of a credit union, you are actually one of the owners of the credit union, and you can run for office in the credit union. Well, it's the same thing with the mutual insurance companies to a large extent. It's changed somewhat. They've gotten more corporate over the last 50 years, but the idea was basically that they were insurance co-ops. When people ask me advice on Medigap insurance policies, for example, I say always look for a company that's got the word mutual in their name because they roll their profits into lowering costs, whereas the for-profit companies, the pure for-profit companies roll their profits into dividends to their shareholders and big bucks for their CEOs and senior executives. We should at least 
visit what you say is the essential question, and that is whether health care is a human right, a privilege, an individual responsibility. Go into that just a bit, please. Well, that's arguably the major debate in America right now and has been for quite some time is where the commons begins and ends, the commons being the stuff that we all collectively own or the, the ways that we collectively take care of each other and look out for each other, how social is our society. And every other developed country in the world, there's 34 countries in the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the 34 richest countries in the world. Every other one of them has adopted some variation on a single-payer health insurance or universal health insurance, except the United States. And again, you can track this back partly, you can track it back to Hoffman and his race theories, but you can also track this to the insurance industry itself, which has produced billionaires. Dollar Bill McGuire, he was the CEO of United Healthcare, which is the, the biggest of the health insurance companies. He walked away with $1.6 billion in compensation. His successor, Stephen J. Hemsley, walked away with, I think it was $850 million. And of course, these giant paychecks and that company has, I believe it's in the neighborhood of 100 executives that make over a million dollars a year. All of those dollars that are going to the stockholders, the CEOs and the, and the senior executives are coming out of your premiums. <laughs> They're coming out of your pocket. And so they have a big vested interest in promoting the idea that healthcare is an individual responsibility, that we are the rugged individualists of the world, which is all just a way of, of passing the buck, basically, of not being responsible for citizens. So America has to decide, are, are we a we society or a me society? And the sad truth is that the libertarian societies out there, the countries where the main thing that the government does is run the police, the courts, and the army, are f generally failed states. You know, if you want to live in a libertarian paradise, move to Somalia. The advanced countries of the world, the developed countries of the world, with the exception of the United States, have all decided long ago that healthcare is a right, and not only is a right, but it is important, as Bismarck pointed out, to keep a society healthy. People will call into my program and say, well, I don't want to be paying for some illegal immigrant, or I don't want to be paying for somebody who's drinking a pint of gin every day, or I don't want to be paying for somebody who smokes a carton of cigarettes a week, or I don't want to be paying for somebody who's eating bonbons on the couch and, and weighs 500 pounds, whatever. And what you find when you go to countries that have national health care systems is that they encourage health because it saves the whole country money. I mean, there's actually a virtuous cycle here. I was in Denmark a few years ago doing my show, and I was interviewing politicians, conservative politicians, actually. And this one conservative politician was talking about the bike lanes in Copenhagen that they had just put in. They had turned a couple of streets over just exclusively to bicycles. And I was like, why is that a good thing? And he said, because it's going to reduce my taxes. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, it's going to reduce my taxes. He says, if people go out and bicycle to work instead of driving to work, they're going to get more exercise, they're going to get healthier, and their health care costs are going to go down. And we pay for our health care system through our taxes. So my taxes will go down if people bicycle to work. And it's like everybody gets it. They have aggressive anti-smoking campaigns in other countries and anti-obesity campaigns. Here in the United States, they advertise crap food on television, and it's all over the stores with product placements, and they, they sell it to children. It's not even a thing in some of you know, many of the other developed countries in the world. 
people get it, public health and individual health are inextricably intertwined. And the health of a nation is bound up in all that. And this idea that healthcare begins and ends at the edge of your skin is nuts. If you're sitting on a bus next to somebody who's an illegal immigrant or a poor person or a bad health risk or whatever, who has no health insurance and therefore can't get health care, and they're coughing and they've got tuberculosis, how does that help you? How does that help society? Public health and personal health are the same thing because diseases, not all diseases are contagious, but most of the things that we call diseases outside of cancer are contagious. And even some cancers actually are contagious. So uh, I think it's an important realization that we need to come to that the rest of the world kind of figured out at the very latest after World War II. Well, this brings up the concept that you write about in Part 2, the origins of Americans' sickness-for-profit system. So you've talked about health care systems, and what we actually have is a sickness-for-profit system. So go into that a little bit. Who's profiting from this system? Well, at every level. Up until now, Joy, we've been talking about health insurance, about the payment side of it. Well, who's getting paid? The the providers. And um, I remember back in the early 1970s, I owned an herbal tea company in Michigan, and we had a little factory. We had 18 employees, and we provided health insurance to all of them. We had Blue Cross Blue Shield, and it was $35 per month per employee. I still remember writing the checks. And the reason it was so inexpensive was because Michigan at that time in 1972 had a law that required health insurance companies to be nonprofits and hospitals to be nonprofits and doctor groups that incorporated had to be nonprofit. And so in Lansing, where I, where I grew up, we had three hospitals, Sparrow, which was started by a charity by a guy named Mr. Sparrow who died with a whole bunch of money. He was one of the founders of Oldsmobiles, I recall. St. Lawrence, which was run by the Catholic Church and Inga Medical, which was run by the county. So all three of them were nonprofit. It didn't cost an arm and a leg to have a baby or go to the hospital or visit the ER. Health insurance was inexpensive. And then that stuff all got blown up in part by Nixon. He started the process, but it was really Reagan who put it on steroids and pushed hard across the United States to end these kinds of state laws and state regulations of insurance companies and of hospitals and of, and of physician groups that required them to be nonprofit. And the theory that they pitched was that nonprofits and governments, because they're not trying to make a profit, are always going to be incompetent, that greed is good, that greed is the most efficient motivator out there. And there's a whole body of research that shows that that's nuts, that that's simply not true. But there's a lot of people who believe that. The for-profit companies have been singing this song for a long time. So now we've got the most expensive medicine in the world, but it's not the most effective medicine in the world. We have an infant mortality rate and a maternal mortality rate, for example, in the United States that's at the bottom of the OECD countries, that's in the neighborhood of some of the third world countries. With virtually every disease, we are not the best in the world or even close to it. And in part, it's because of this system that just sucks so much money out of our lives. We have in the United States two years ago and for the previous decades, we were averaging about 500,000 medical bankruptcies a year. If somebody in a family gets sick and the family has to go bankrupt, that wipes out a family. Sometimes 
not just for a few years, sometimes literally for a generation. People lose their homes, they lose their jobs, their credit rating gets trashed, they have a terrible time recovering, pulling themselves up by their proverbial bootstraps. And we were doing this to a half a million families a year in the United States, every single year. And last year it was 700,000. This year it looks like it's going to be a million because of COVID. And last year because of COVID too. And when you look at that kind of damage and you say, well, this is a terrible thing. I wonder how the rest of the world is dealing with this. The number of medical bankruptcies in Canada was zero. The number of medical bankruptcies in Germany, zero. France, zero. Spain, zero. Denmark, zero. The Netherlands, zero. Pick your country, right? It just This is something that is absolutely unique to the United States. There's two things that are completely unique to the United States among all the developed countries in the world, medical debt and student debt. All these other countries, you can go to college for free or close to it, and you go to the doctor for free or close to it. And here, no, it's somebody's got to make a buck. You've got to figure out a way for somebody to make a buck. And it's really holding us back. It's making it so that people can't start families. It's, it's destroying families just because somebody gets sick. It is a moral obscenity, Joe. I was struck by the use of the term Stockholm Syndrome in reference to the high rates of bankruptcy every year due to medical expenses. Would you briefly elaborate on how you use it to liken it to Stockholm Syndrome? First of all, what is Stockholm Syndrome and how does it apply here? Yeah, the Stockholm Syndrome is a psychological, essentially defense mechanism where when somebody is held captive, and this ranges from prisoners of war all the way down to uh, abused spouses, when somebody is held captive, they begin to identify with their captor. They begin to adopt the worldview of their captor. They begin to view their captor as perhaps the thing or the person who's going to keep them safe even though it's the person or thing that's abusing them. And we have, as a country, we have been so badly abused all these years by these billionaires and giant for-profit corporations that are just sucking the blood out of the working class of America. And we're still going along with it, and we're still reciting their worldview and listening to right-wing talk radio and reciting their talking points and watching Fox News, which is owned by a billionaire, uh, Rupert Murdoch and his, and his son Lachlan. And it's a tragedy. It's just an absolute tragedy. We're hearing the term communism being bandied about more and more lately, and it really seems to trigger people. It makes it difficult and impossible in many cases to discuss the advantages of universal health care with people. And I don't know how we can get beyond that wall of that triggering mechanism. Do you have any ideas about that, Tom? Number one, I I believe by and large that this is a generational thing, that those of us who are over 50 and remember the Soviet Union and remember that communism described a totalitarian system, for those folks, communism is a word that works. And, and that's why you see it a lot on Fox News, for example. You hear it a lot on Fox News because the average age of a Fox News viewer is 71 years old. I think for the younger generation, what we're finding is that people under 40, more than half of them actually embrace the word socialism. I I don't think communism is particularly popular, but I don't think it scares them at all. And socialism is a word that for older folks like me, I'm 70, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, you know, and Karl Marx referred to communism as socialism. 
For us, that word socialism has one meaning. For younger people, it means having a union or being part of a co-op or having a community or a neighborhood or a town that generates its own power or where people collaborate on things, sort of the positive view. And democratic socialism, which is how most of the Northern European countries identify themselves as democratic socialists. They have a strong public sector, but they also have a strong private sector. I don't want the government making my computer or my blue jeans. I believe in innovation and free enterprise. But I also know that when you have things that are essential to the general welfare, to quote the preamble of the Constitution and Article 1, Section 8, when you have things that are essential to the general welfare, that government actually does do those things well. Government does run armies well, better than contractors do. Government does run courts well. And government can run healthcare or at least the payment for healthcare systems well. The British would tell you that the government can run a healthcare system well. They're kind of the outlier. Great Britain's National Health Service is pretty much you know, the only socialized medicine system among all the major countries in the world. The rest of them just have government write the checks and then they heavily regulate the, the private sector. Uh, for example, like it was in Michigan back in the 70s where you have to be nonprofit if you're a hospital and that kind of thing. I recall the arguments during the Obama administration when he was trying to get the Affordable Care Act passed and people were saying things about we don't want government controlling which doctor we can see and the death panels and all this kind of stuff entirely disregarding the realities of how health care is administered by corporations, by capitalism, deciding whether you can get treated for cancer or not, whether you can get a life-saving surgery or not. Why isn't there the same emotional response to that structure Because of 60 years of propaganda following on the 1971 Powell memo, it's so weird. Back during the Obamacare debates, I remember flipping on Fox News once and and hearing them talk about how you don't want government deciding how much money is going to be spent on your care at whatever. And I'm talking back to the TV. I'm like, okay, let me get this straight. Government, I can change as a voter. I can, if I don't like what government is doing, I can change their policies by voting in different people. But if I have health insurance with United Healthcare and they decide to screw me and I think, well, maybe I could go to Aetna or Blue Cross, but they're, they all have the exact same policies. They figure out how to maximize profits. So I'm going to go to a health insurance company and as, and a CEO like Stephen Helmsley or Dollar Bill McGuire is going to make the decision for me. How is that a good thing again? I'm not getting this. But by only presenting half of the argument, they get away with this kind of illogical logic. I am constantly bemused by this. It just doesn't make sense. The whole concept of for-profit means that, I mean, the only way you can do that is shaving off stuff. And what gets shaved off is needed health care. Well, anyway, I won't go on with that rant. Tom Hartman, let's get back to the history. World War I happens, the roaring 20s, the horror of the Great Depression. People were starving. People couldn't find work. Franklin Delano Roosevelt is voted in. And one of the best things he ever did, in my opinion, was talk Francis Perkins into being his Secretary of Labor. This woman came so well prepared to deal with the realities of the Great Depression. She really is one of the most underappreciated and honored people in our entire history. 
Remind our listeners what her efforts were around health care. She was an advocate for a national health care system. And Frances Perkins was just an extraordinary person. I, I read a biography of hers when I was doing the research for this book. It's called The Woman Behind the New Deal, I believe, is the title of the biography. And you wouldn't have had the New Deal if it wasn't for Frances Perkins. She believed that health care was a right. She was also a big fan of women's rights. And she pushed this really hard. The problem that she and others were coming up against at that time was this ideology of Frederick Hoffman that if you have health care for everybody in America, that means black people get it too. And, and racism was the law, actually, in the United States. Segregation was the law up until 1954. And it didn't happen. But she she got a lot of good stuff done. As you point out in your book, in order to get the other things passed in the New Deal, they had to let go of the health care because the Southern Democrats were not going to go along with it. So then Truman comes in and he also tries to get health care government-sponsored. And the same people shot him down for the same reasons. Right. Okay. But LBJ comes along. And he isn't able to get it for everyone, but he manages to get Medicare to happen. Now, you already talked about the 20% gap, but would you please set the stage of how LBJ muscled that through? Oh, yeah. It's an amazing story. In fact, I should grab the book so I can just quote LBJ. He's The uh, AMA was very, very opposed to uh, Medicare, in part because, again, you know, black people would get it. And also they felt that it would put their power in general. While you're looking that up, so the AMA is the American Medical Association, and everything was very segregated in still in the early 60s. It didn't matter if you were bleeding to death, if you were of African-American descent, you could not go to the nearest hospital if it was a white hospital. And people lost their lives because of this. That was just the reality of the time. This, by the way, Medicare, and most people have no idea that this is the case, Medicare was the most efficient, successful racial integration program in the history of the United States because it required that hospitals not segregate by race. And in like one or two years, transformed American medicine. But this is this great story from the LBJ Presidential Library. I'll just tell it as as it's told from Joe Califano, who was his uh, secretary of health and human services. Yeah. Sitting around the cabinet table, the AMA officials waited politely for Johnson to say something as he settled into his chair. The president took his time gazing at their cold stares. Then he talked about the need for physicians in Vietnam to help serve the civilian population. Would the AMA help? Could it get doctors to rotate in and out of Vietnam for a few months? He got the reply he expected. Of course the AMA would start the program immediately, the doctors responded, almost in unison. Get a couple of reporters in here, Johnson said. The president, Johnson, described the AMA's Vietnam medical program heaping praise on the doctors present. But the reporters want to know about Medicare. Would the doctors support the Medicare program? Now, keep in mind, the AMA had come there to tell Johnson that they were going to be completely opposed to Medicare. So Johnson turns to the reporters and he says, these men are going to get doctors to go to Vietnam where they might get killed. Medicare is the law of the land. Of course, they'll support the law of the land. And then LBJ turns to Dr. James Apple, the AMA president, says, tell him, you tell him. And Apple says, yep, I guess so. Two days later, LBJ signed the law. It's an amazing story. 
Yes, it is. One of many amazing stories that you have in your book, Tom Hartman, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Medicare only applies at that time to people over the age of 65. Later on, it also included people who are disabled. Let's fast forward to the Bush administration and the Medicare Modernization Act of 2003. And I must say, these days with the recent history, any time I hear Modernization Act, I quake in my boots. It reminds me of the Financial Services Modernization Act of 1999 that undid the the protections of Glass-Steagall that ended up in the 2008 global financial mental. But let's get back to the Medicare Modernization Act, Medicare Advantage, Medicare Part C. Explain to our listeners about that. Well, the health insurance companies have been trying for years. First of all, they, they, they ended up going along with Medicare because LBJ's sales pitch to them was, listen, you guys are here to make a profit. We get that. And what you also understand is that when people hit 65 or get older than 65, they become less profitable for an insurer because they start having health problems and, and they become more expensive. So I'm going to take those folks off your hands. So you can concentrate on the really profitable people. So at first, the health insurance companies were fine with this. But then as people quit smoking and and started getting healthier and our diets changed and people started living longer and doing well, the health insurance companies wanted to crack back into that over 65 market. They saw it as one of the last areas where they could still grow and make money, particularly in the younger people over 65, that is people 65 to 75. And so they had been lobbying for the ability to compete with Medicare and have private insurance, give people the option of, do you want Medicare or do you want to simply buy a private insurance policy? And finally, with the Bush administration, what they got, Bush and the Republicans were very enthusiastic about this. And they brought along a few Democrats who were well bought by the insurance industry. They created this private option for health insurance. It is not Medicare. It sucks more money per person out of the Medicare system than people being on Medicare does. It's actually destructive to Medicare. And it's private health insurance, and they can cut you off. They can refuse to pay for things. They can make you jump through hoops when you want to get your prescriptions filled or go to see a doctor or go to have a procedure or anything. You know, it's just like regular for-profit health insurance. It's a total pain in the butt. But they were able to get the name Medicare attached to it. So they call it Medicare Advantage. And people think when they sign up for Medicare Advantage that they're signing up for Medicare and they're getting all this heavily government regulated program where they don't take advantage of you and all the way to the, to the end of your life, your all your expenses are going to be covered. And Medicare Advantage is not that. Medicare Advantage is private for-profit health insurance. And the first couple of years you're on it, as long as you're not costing them a lot of money, they love you and they'll do a lot to try to get you in to get those premiums, four, five, six, eight, ten years of premiums. The practices that the industry engages in are called lemon dropping and cherry picking. And the cherry picking is we want to get young, healthy people in. So we'll offer vision and dental and gyms, you know, young people, healthy people. They use gyms with we'll free gym memberships and stuff like this. And we'll even give you a hundred dollars cash every month instead of costing you a hundred bucks every month as Medicare does. But then after you start getting sick, you know, when you hit your mid to late 70s or into your 80s, 
and you start getting not necessarily sick, but getting more expensive, shall we say, to the health insurance companies, then they do lemon dropping. And that's where they just, they start going out of their way to, to nickel and dime every single invoice and forget to pay things and stuff gets falling through the cracks and pretty soon you're in collection and then they fight with you about everything to, to the point where people just throw their hands up and say, screw this, I'm going to go back to Medicare. And so then once you become expensive, you become an expense of the federal government rather than the health insurance companies. It's a racket. It's a scam. And what's particularly bad about it is that it's really hard once you've signed up for Medicare Advantage to go back to traditional Medicare. They make it really, really difficult. And I feel like a one-man's fire alarm squad, Paul Revere here, you know, look out, look out, because they're spending a fortune, millions of dollars, of, a, 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 probably millions of dollars a day promoting this stuff on TV with Joe Namath and, and Jimmy, I'm forgetting his last name, the celebrity endorsers who go on TV. And, you can get free dental and free vision and rise to the doctor, but good luck if you get sick. If you actually get sick, you're going to end up broke. So that's from the point of view of the patients, but it's also a scam in terms of the relationship to government payment. Talk about the concept of risk score. The way it works is when a person signs up for Medicare Advantage, the insurance company is not reimbursed by Medicare, which is what everybody assumes. Everybody assumes that every time they go to the doctor, the insurance company pays for it, and then the insurance company goes back to Medicare and gets the money, and the insurance company is just acting like a middleman. It's not bad at all. The way it works is the insurance company goes to the government, and they say, okay, we've got 2.5 million people who are on our Medicare Advantage plans, and we have determined that they are going to cost us X per year. And therefore, Medicare, you have to reimburse us X plus our, our profit margin. And, and this is why I said earlier that people on Medicare Advantage actually cost Medicare more than people on Medicare for the same practices. But A, the Advantage companies are for-profit companies. They get, they've got to skim the stuff off the top, as you pointed out earlier, Joy. But then B, they've got all these little games they play to try to up the risk scores to make it look to the government like the people that they're insuring are going to be more expensive. But then they're going to try to deny those people that care. And so they'll send like nurses to your home when you first sign up and they'll look for any little thing and they say, oh, we're doing this as a service for you. We want to find out if you have anything that we need to cover to get you to the doctor to make sure that nobody has missed anything. You know, do you have an undiagnosed condition? And then they'll take whatever you've got, say your blood pressure is a little high or your triglycerides are just a little off or something, and they'll basically exaggerate it. And there's ways that they can legally do this. What's the old saying that Abraham Lincoln, you know, figures don't lie, but liars can figure. They exaggerate it to the federal government to jack up their payments. And this becomes, of course, part of their profits. It's one of the reasons why Dollar Bill McGuire was able to walk away with over a billion dollars from United Healthcare. So that's risk-adjusted large batch payments, and it's it's a scam. Now, current senator from Florida, former governor of Florida, Rick Scott, was the head of Columbia HCA. Was he convicted of $1.7 billion of Medicare fraud? Well, he was the CEO. The company was convicted. We have this funny thing in America where companies can become felons and somehow all the people who made the decisions have nothing to do with it. It was the largest Medicare fraud in the history of the United States. That was Rick Scott. He's now the senator. And he walked away with millions, 10, I don't know if he made over a hundred million, but it was, it was 
many, many tens of millions of dollars, which he then used to fund his campaigns for governor and for Senate. And he's going to use to run for president in 2024. Right. Well, just today, uh, we're recording this on August 16th, 2021. Politico is reporting that Rick Scott is calling for invocation of the 25th Amendment because of Biden's what Rick Scott characterizes as incompetence in the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, This is a quote. We must confront a serious question. Is Joe Biden capable of discharging the duties of his office or has time come to exercise the provisions of the 25th Amendment? So whether or not Rick Scott, the buck stopped at his desk as a head of the Columbia HCA, when they were convicted of $1.7 billion worth of Medicare fraud, he's invoking the 25th Amendment now to remove Joe Biden from office. That's pretty breathtaking. Yeah, that's (laughs) That's pretty audacious. (laughs) Yes, yes. And we won't even get into the health mm, edicts of the current governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. Some are calling him Ron death sentence. But anyway, we're just about out of time. And I want to leave a minute for final words from you, Tom Hartman, in this latest book of yours, The Hidden History of American Healthcare. Well, when you look around the world at the other developed countries of the world, you find that there's actually a a fairly wide variety of ways to approach healthcare. As Switzerland, for example, does not have a a centralized system. They just require everybody in the country to have health insurance, and then they require all the health insurance companies to be nonprofits. That's the most expensive system in the world, except ours. It's the second most expensive system in the world. England has a socialized medicine system where the government hires the doctors and owns the hospitals and the the doctor's offices. Pretty much the rest has more or less a single-payer system or a single-payer system with a little bit of health insurance around the edges, particularly for very wealthy people who want to be able to know that they're going to get an entire suite at the hospital rather than share a room with somebody or to have air ambulances if they're out of the country. But what we know, and and where we started with this conversation with uh, Taiwan being the best example, what we know is that the simplest, most efficient, most effective, most cost-effective, and most successful at delivering healthcare system in the world is a single-payer system. We have one here in the United States. It's called Medicare. The total overhead, depending on how you calculate it for Medicare, runs 1% to 3%, whereas the overhead for your for-profit health insurance companies runs 20 to 25% in general. And it used to be higher than that, but Obamacare pushed it down by force of law. So we really need to be seriously looking at a single-payer system. And the easiest way to do that would simply be to extend Medicare to everybody in the country. Well, actually, we don't have time to go into this, but I will leave listeners with this tidbit that you point out in your book. And that is that we do have single-payer government-sponsored health care in the Veterans Administration. And mm-hmm. by all accounts, that is actually a very, the veterans get very good care. There are problems. There's no doubt about that. That's mostly the distribution of health centers, but that's been going on yeah. for a long that's, time. That's actually not a single payer system. That's a, that's socialized medicine, like the UK's national health service, where the government owns the centers and employs the doctors. That's right. I, thank so, you for that correction. So we have both models here. We have, we have a model in the United States for socialized medicine in the VA system, and we have a, a model of single payer healthcare system in Medicare. 
and we could synthesize the two of them. We could pick one or the other. I mean, we have a lot of options. We need to have this conversation as a country. Well, Tom Hartman, thank you so much for having this conversation with us once again on Forthright Radio. And we thank you so much for your work and for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Joy. Thank you so much for having me on and for reading the book. Oh, I love your books, Tom. I really do. Well, thank you. <laughs> I always learn things. And I like to think I'm pretty up on history, but I always learn wonderful things in your books. Nice talking with you. Thank you, Joy. You're welcome. You have just heard an interview with Tom Hartman about the latest addition to his Hidden History series, The Hidden History of American Healthcare, Why Sickness Bankrupts You and Makes Others Insanely Rich. It will be published by B.K. Barrett Kohler Publishers and will be available on September 7, 2021. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. We end today's Forthright Radio with the words of Floyd Red Crow Westerman, Dakota Sioux political activist, musician, and actor, who entered the spirit world in 2007. I came across this short piece by him recently, and I dedicate its broadcast to the water protectors, who with courage, fortitude, and perseverance endure some of the worst from the minions of the perverse conspiracy of those who profit from the fossil fuel political industrial complex. May their actions meet with honor and success. Surely we are blessed that they dwell among us in this time of climate crisis and catastrophe. Time evolves and comes to a place where it renews again. There is first a purification time, then there is renewal time. We are getting very close to this time now. We were told that we would see America come and go. And in a sense, America is dying from within. Because they forgot the instructions on how to live on earth. Everything is coming to a time where prophecy and man's inability to live on earth in a spiritual way will come to a crossroad of great problems. It's the hopey belief, it's our belief that if you're not spiritually connected to the earth and understand the spiritual reality of how to live on earth, it's likely you will not make it. When Columbus came, that began what we term as the First World War. That was the true First World War when Columbus arrived. Because along with him came everybody from Europe. By the end of the Second World War, we were in America, we were only 800,000 from 60 million 
to 800,000. So we were almost exterminated here in America. Everything is spiritual. Everything has a spirit. Everything... Everything was brought to you by the Creator, the one Creator. Some people call him God. Some people call him Buddha. Some people call him Allah. Some people call him other names. We call him Tonkashila, grandfather. We're here on Earth only a few winters. Then we go to the spirit world. The spirit world is, is more real than most of us believe. The spirit world is, is everything. Over 95% of our body is water. And in order to stay healthy, you've got to drink good water. When the European first came here, Columbus, we could drink out of any river. If the Europeans had lived the Indian way when they came, we'd still be drinking out of water because the water is sacred. The air is sacred. Our DNA is made of the same DNA as the tree. The tree breathes what we exhale. When the tree exhales, we need what the tree exhales. So we have a common destiny with the tree. We are all from the earth. And when the earth, the water, the atmosphere is corrupted, then it will create its own reaction. Mother is reacting. In the Hopi prophecy, they say the storms and floods will become greater. To me, it's not a negative thing to know that there will be great changes. It's not negative. It's evolution. When you look at it as evolution, it's time. Nothing stays the same. You should learn how to plant something. That's the first connection. You should treat all things as spirit. Realize that we are one family. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.